Welcome, this is Poetry on the Move. In this episode, the second of a two-part podcast, Poetry That Resists, recorded at the Poetry on the Move Festival held in Canberra in 2019, and presented with the support of and in conjunction with Australian poetry. During the socially traumatised times of history, the ability of poetry to express human conscience has seen it embraced as a significant art form. In this panel, a discussion on poets and poetry that speaks back, poetry that utilises the active lyrical power of poetic language to express moral and political dissent. Our first speaker is Bronwyn Lovell. Bronwyn Lovell is an Adelaide-based writer. Her poetry is featured in Mianjin, Cordite, Antipodes, Verity La and other journals. She has won the Val Vallis Award, the Adrian Abbott Poetry Prize, and has been shortlisted for the Judith Wright, Fair Australia, Newcastle, Bridport and Montreal Prizes. And a warning that this episode contains some graphic imagery. I have uh, very little wisdom to share, so I'm going to uh, let the poem speak today. I've prepared a reading uh, rather than a paper. Um, Much of my writing is fueled by a sense of injustice in the way the world operates socially, economically, politically. Um, And I'm interested in uh, the everyday, um, the the seemingly mundane. Um, Just yesterday, uh, across at the shopping centre, I had a man come up to me and say that he loved my hair but he stopped me with his hands and then he started touching my hair and um, caressing my shoulder and uh, these sort of things actually happen on a daily basis and I'm interested in those um, power inequities because uh, my first thought as I um, walked away from that was that he would not have done that if I had been a man. So most of what I will read today is feminist in its concerns. However, a couple of poems also consider climate change and the refugee crisis through science fiction. Fucking lucky. Because in my worst experience of assault, it was a dirty hand that stabbed its way up my vagina, not a penis or knife, and because it was one man, not the gang of friends he rang, and because I was dropped off alive, dizzy and livid. Prayer for the girl who is not a feminist. May you never have cause to become one. May low-cut blouses invite only sun. May no one mistake your figure for your worth, no fingers force their way up your skirt. May you never have to guard your glass, wake up groggy, grow up fast. May your neighbourhoods all be well lit. May you never go through with it just to be polite. May your high heels click quickly through the car park at night. May your makeup not thicken to cover a nasty bruise from a boozy lover. May your paycheck never be so low that you cannot leave when you need to go. May you fail to find your mother's pain 
folded quietly in the linen press and guess which man you love is to blame. May you be skipped by statistics. May your friends escape the cars unscathed and all your daughters come home safe. Working girl, you and I can both get jobs and finally see what it means to be living. Fast car, Tracy Chapman. One, I trade time for dollars at the minimum wage exchange. I wipe tables instead of writing poems. I am well versed in the cycle of reheating and eating frozen meals in the windowless staff room. I know my worth in hourly increments. I have purchased property with my body. I have a small patch of grass the bank lets me mow. I live within my fence, make my garden pretty, iron my uniform to hang an empty effigy to my hollow shape. I am paying the bank off for a metal box in which I cart myself across suburbs pumping noxious gas exhaust on my way to the shopping centre where I serve the fried flesh of dead animals to pigs who don't think they are animals. I scrape the waste from their plates into the trash to be shipped out to stink up some other place where garbage piles like body bags. Two, I want to do the real work. I want to write the world anew, but that's not what companies pay me to do. I am the overqualified unskilled. I am the doctoral student you drive through, that see-through counter chick. Sometimes I wonder what lipstick, wig, tit tassels and a spray tan might do. How much could I make? What would it strip from me and could I break, even, pay my way out? What's a small heart sink for cash in hand? Three, I see how it happens. An overdue power bill, medication for the cat, funding cuts, no penalty rates, my savings account stripped bare. There isn't a woman in my lineage who hasn't earned her keep. Stripper me does not differ greatly from strapped me. She's just a girl trying to make some money. She's simply more practical writes off fishnet stockings and pole dancing classes on her tax. It wouldn't take much, full body wax, theatre thick foundation, waterproof mascara and a spine. The girls in International House do it, call them Asian beauties or student slaves. Call me by my name badge, love or something else entirely. Shop girl, if you are waiting for the right girl, the really truly special one who blows your mind and cock and the girl shop doesn't have her in yet, you can take a lone girl until the right one comes and then you can return the other one since they mostly dust off fine. You might just have to wait a long time to buy the girl you're looking for. And even then, she may not be available straight away. But thankfully, 
There are women who will let you take them home with nothing sparkly. You can drive them round and round for free while looking for a better one. There are women who will wait in the passenger seat. Moving on to some cli-fi now. Faced with full-grown infancy, children. Before the blight, children went on strike, walked out of classrooms and wouldn't go back. For too long, teachers had taught the art of hiding, how to crawl quietly under desks, to stay still and play dead, but that did not stop the gunmen, the hungry, angry hordes, the encroaching desert or endless dust storms. Kids were sick of adult impotence, determined to save endangered creatures like themselves. Children left relics, stonily reciting thoughts and prayers to the darkening sky till those tongues grew thick and heavy, caked in silt. Before the blight, children went out to fight for a dwindling chance at life. Before the world wilted and became barren, women bore children and babies lived in the light, breathed without coughing clotted blood. Before the blight, there were children and children could be children. Moon. This is a concrete poem, so I'll just put it there. <laughs> Our penance was to gaze at the stunning sculpture we had cracked, to be faced by ourselves, unable to block out the planet's eerie sphere, pervasive glow. And we took to bowing our heads low, focused on the dust kicked up by each leap, finer than sand, like ashes. And children played in ashes and our lives were almost full. 384,400 kilometers away, and I'd driven it before in excruciating increments back and forth in my car, daily commutes when I, good citizen, kept my eye on the road, hardly noticed the poplars and pines, what colour looked like outside a human face. Sunsets as purple-pink as the pinch I inflict on your now pale cheek, eager for something to bud and bloom, like the last batch of flowers that lost all their petals, so I can no longer tell if I still love you. And this is my last poem. It's uh, about ET and also the refugee crisis. Phoning home. One, I am not so brave as Elliot, could never lay out a candy path for hungry, lost forms to follow through the dark backyard to my bedroom door. Two, I'm in awe of this pale, awkward boy, pedalling hard in little red hoodie, riding his bicycle across the blue moon through crisp, 
pine needle night with the heart-shaped head of his alien friend, blanket cloaked in the basket, buoyed by love. Three, often you are alien to me when our fingers touch the spark. You lift me over landscapes, but I'm afraid you'll let me fall. I have allowed the wrong ones to carry me before. Let's just lie here on our backs now, pedal each other's feet above the floor. Four, together we must escape the earthmen who land stern as politicians in the driveway to set up quarantine in spacesuits, an adult intervention so sterile and inhuman it turns us both white. Five, you're killing him, Elliot shouts as E.T.'s heart slows and stops in his small chalky chest. The flowers droop and the body bag is zipped and it's cold as frost, but the corpse glows red. Six, if you are sick and I can't cure you, then we are both sick. If you need family near you, I want them close too. If sadness drifts in to settle ashen across your face, then I must brave the boats, seek the mothership. Seven, there will be times you will feel extraordinarily lonely on this blue planet if you stay, my alien friend. You'll see the broken father of a washed up child and understand that nature failed with human hearts. Thank you. That was Bronwyn Lovell. Our next speaker is Alison Whittaker. Alison Whittaker is a Gomeroy multitasker from the floodplains of Gunnedah in New South Wales. Her debut poetry collection, Lemons in the Chicken Wire, was awarded the State Library of Queensland's Black and Right Indigenous Writing Fellowship in 2015 and was published by Magabala Books in 2016. Her latest book, Black Work, was published in 2018. Alison was the co-winner of the Overland Judith Wright Poetry Prize in 2017 for her poem, Many Girls, White Linen. Yama, uh, this is Ngunnawal country, and you're going to hear that acknowledged many times, um, either prior to this as part of this festival, uh, or in the coming days and weeks. Part of the discussion uh, that Indigenous peoples globally are having about acknowledgements is that they've often deviated from their protocol Acknowledgements are meant to unsettle something. And they've become kind of part of a, a blackwashing of sorts that let us hold events like these without guilt. Acknowledgements should really trouble us. This is not a war land. This building was, as I understand it, built for the wives of politicians to live lives of leisure while abject horror was taking place around them. It's an art center now. 
that history, that trajectory is the same for many art centres, places that were owned by the colony and then given to the public sector, given to communities, in order for us to have discussions like this. This is Ngunnawal country and Ngunnawal people were killed, displaced, dispossessed of their selves, their children, for us to be here today. And the necessary implication of that, if we really acknowledge it, if we're really here today to talk about resistance, is to give it back. Um, it's kind of weird that um, Ali and I swap places today because I've been thinking a lot about what it means to resist in the colony. I put out this second book, um, Black Work, because I had a, I guess, a kind of theory of change with Lemons and the Chicken Wire, which was that if I just told people enough about myself, they would understand um, the various ways in which the colony was inflicting pain on us and they would stop. Um, which is a pretty big ambition when you're 20 years old to put on a book of poetry, um, probably not fair on it. Um, but one of the most perverse things and, and one of the most infuriating things about that book um, was the reaction that it had from an audience I never wanted it to get. Um, I say this with, with absolute kindness and love um, to all in the room, um, but I attracted a predominantly white upper middle class audience who um, at poetry signings afterwards would tell me that I was brave and articulate and all these other weird racialized things um, that demonstrated their surprise that I managed to pull together a fucking book of poetry, which in fairness to everybody here is actually not that hard. Um, it was difficult for me to be touched that way, to become someone's pet. So I wrote black work thinking if I wrote a grittier, meaner, crueler book, uh, that it would be better at resisting people and that they would stop touching me and saying these things. Uh, but they did not. I completely failed to make white people uncomfortable. It's a, it's a real genuine failure on my part um, that I find hard to emotionally wrestle with. How am I resisting something that's creating a product that, for whatever reason, a whole heap of white people really enjoy? To what extent can poetry resist when the consumption of indigenous suffering is actually a pillar upon which the Australian arts community is built? Uh, and am I becoming more and more complicit with every similar event like this? These are things I'm grappling with in the day to day. And I know these are uncomfortable conversations to bear witness to, but they're happening. It's not enough to just listen to this poetry today. We actually have to go out and do fucking something about it. I love like Dorothy's. I loved a sunburnt country, dislodged in a memory. I never lived in time to love a love like Dorothy's. We're cannibals of other kinds. This white woman has eaten my sky and where's that leave them girls like I? Lost creatures chewing over the night of our missing sunburnt country, on which our prone feet land, yet onto which McKellar's gaze turns rivers into sand. It burns my eyes to turn to hers, 
my wide brown land out of like hands but traced in fetish verse. She says, I love a sunburnt country. I loved a sunburnt country. I love white nativity that digs its roots and ticks to suck the floodplains to the sea. It was her love that swept those sweeping plains from Nempop, Mum and me. Caught in my heart, my country, beauty, terror, balm and bite, building, taking flesh, building furnace, taking flight, lavish and demanding, driving lapping cattle off while emu kangaroo-alike on highway going soft. I could have loved them twisting grass fans, grabbing moats with bobby hands, like I loved this judied vastness that I am less and less than land. I loved a sunburnt country, won't it? Please come back to me, won't it? Show me why my spirit wanders, but is never free. I will soothe its burns with lotion. I will peel off its dead skin if it can tell me why I'm drifting ever further from my kin. I loved a sunburnt country, won't it? Gingerly limp back. I can't get past the concrete. My black tongue's gone all slack. And I'm sorry, sweet Mackella, that it famished all your cows, paddocks, yellow thirsties, sudden green, no telling how. That the gold hush rainy drum, hard to your violence and your plow. I love a sunburnt country. I love a sunburnt country that is mine, but not for me. Um, I'm going to read two more poems for you today. Um, maybe an observation I'll make about that poem, which you might find funny, you might not, but I find it really funny. Uh, when people talk about the resistance in my poetry, um, you might see that a love like Dorothy's is laid out sideways on the page, uh, and they like to talk about how the collection subtly resists the reader because you have to turn it. Um, I didn't decide that. That was uh, <laughs> my typesetter. <laughs> I'm going to read you a poem now called Exhibit Tab, um, which I think maybe the further I get along into reading it and the more I see people's reactions to it, um, the more that I kind of understand the relationship between law and literature. I'm also a, a lawyer and a legal researcher, and I work principally in deaths in custody and police violence. Um, some of you may or may not know, but every death in custody in Australia has to be uh, investigated by a coroner. Um, which was a recommendation of the Royal Commission held in the early 90s. Um, the product of that is that each death in custody is highly documented, but there have only ever been uh, two or three prosecutions of uh, police or corrections officers that have gone to trial, despite there being over 450 deaths since 1992. Um, so what does it mean to constantly be telling someone's story but not actually doing anything about it? I put this poem together um, by analysing the 49 most common three-word phrases in the Western Australian coroner's findings into the death of Ms Du, uh, who was incarcerated for unpaid parking fines and other administration fines. Uh, with a broken rib, which became septic, uh, she was denied care and died over three days. Um, 
Before I begin, for those of you who aren't familiar, for cultural reasons, Ms. Do's uh, first and middle names aren't used. I'll denote them with a click. First class constable, do the death of, of, into the death, death of, do, 1102014. Inquest into the 1102014 page, do, 11020. Class Constable Mattier, 4 August 2014. Senior Constable Burgess, Exhibit 1, Tab. 3 August, 2014, at the inquest. 2 August, 2014, Exhibit 3, Tab. The emergency department that she was, I'm satisfied that, I am satisfied. Lockup keeper, to the effect, the police officers, exhibit four tab. The effect that evidence was, fitness to hold, evidence was that of the police. The fact that to hold form would have been that she had the Western Australia. There was no emergency department notes. Exhibit two tab, the custody system, dues temperature, the police vehicle, lockup procedure, ought to have Western Australia police, class constable George, through his counsel, was feigning her lockup procedures. When I was asked to join this panel, Jacinta very um, generously asked me to revisit um, the latest Australian poetry journal, which is um, edited by John Kinsella on the theme of resist. Um, I can't get my phone to download this. <laughs> Do you have a copy? Oh, that's okay. I think she wanted me to read it out. Sorry, Jacinta, if you're listening. Um, I. Sure, I'll buy some time. Um, I, I wrote this in response to a poem. John approached me um, and asked if I wanted to write a poem for this. And I was kind of on hiatus at the time because, as you can probably tell, I'm a little bit iffy about poetry at the moment and its capacity to resist. Um, but I did offer him this incredible poem that I'd encountered while judging the Judith Wright Poetry Prize this year um, from a young Ewan poet called Caitlin Wellington. Caitlin Wellington wrote this amazing poem, which I wrote recite because I don't have a permission today, uh, called It's About Time, and I really encourage you to engage with it. Um, Caitlin showed to me in that poem uh, a new way of thinking about resistance, that in some ways through poetry our role is less about reaching out to prove our humanity to other people or reaching out to get them to do something, um, but rather reaching out to one another as Indigenous people um, and to fortify ourselves for what comes ahead. This looks promising. Yay. Um, I can find it if you like. Thank you. Um, so Jacinta asked me to read my response to that very, very good poem, which I will do 
today, and then I will let us all be much more comfortable by sitting down away from the microphone. Here we go, I found it. All right, we're good. What does it mean to resist in this colony? For so long so far, in my very short life, it has meant biting back. An imposition or an incursion here or there, we gather to push it away or keep it steady. We build skills on the settler's terms, articulate our grievances and litigate them in the courts of public or in institutional tribunals, always in ways they can understand or action. It is necessary work, but it's meant that we are kept busy. How can we do otherwise? When we blister, we talk about the self-care we do to sustain a series of selves that we send out to live in these institutions. We atomize our reciprocal obligations to one another as a responsibility to care for oneself before we become burdens. At least, that's what I think when I'm sinking slowly into a bath I haven't bothered to clean. It's grime, a symptom of my malaise, an efficiency dividend on late nights and high blood pressure and a lingering expectation, even when things are good, that things are about to collapse. I put clean bath on a bullet journal next to my bed to organize my mind, become a better resistor. Bath bomb, I add when I wake up at three. I become a consistently optimizing tool in some ways completely indistinguishable in discipline and form from the stuff that I'm resisting. This year, after many long years under which my body slowly gave way under the optimal, I took a breath. And while all things remain unresolved, such is the colony. Tendrils gather around my sense of what it means to get the colony off our backs, and they will soon maybe be ready to be woven. When I read Caitlin Wellington's It's About Time, I thrummed with her knowing that to resist meant more to engage in a cycle where we react and survive, react and survive. Through her work, I realized in more ways than one that we must work to restore and be part of and responsible to those country and mob which we protect by resisting what threatens them. Otherwise, what's it all for? What's the point of making a nicer colony? That was Alison Whitaker, and that ends this episode of the Poetry on the Move podcast. Thanks to Alison and to Bronwyn Lovell. This podcast is made possible by IPSI, the International Poetry Studies Institute, in the Centre for Creative and Cultural Research, Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra. My name is Shane Strange. Thank you for listening.